Luke chapter 17. The kingdom of God is a very major theme in the Gospel of Luke. We've seen several themes fleshed out over our 17-chapter journey so far. We've seen that Luke puts a lot of emphasis on prayer, that he's continually going back to Jesus praying and teaching us how to pray. There's a lot of emphasis on the Holy Spirit and its work. There's an emphasis on uh, the Gentile nations and how God intends to reach out to them and breach the border of Israel to share grace with this, the tribes and the tongues throughout the world. And we're going to see today that the kingdom of God is one of the most profound themes that we see again and again come up through the Gospel of Luke. Look at this passage from chapter 4. You might remember this from several months ago. Verses 42 and 43 where Jesus is speaking. Now it was... Now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place, and the crowd sought him and came to him, and tried to keep him from leaving them. But Jesus said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. So these individuals wanted to retain Jesus. They wanted him to stay and continue to teach them and lead them and guide them. But he made it clear to them that, listen, one of the major reasons I am here on this planet is to preach the kingdom of God. And I can't just preach it to you. I've got to preach it to all the cities. And so this is clearly a very important part of what Jesus came to do. We know that the coming of the kingdom was not the only thing that was important to the Savior, but a statement like this gives us a sense of how critical a role the kingdom of God is coming to play in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and by proxy in the life of believers as well. What has the gospel of Luke taught us about the kingdom so far? I want to take some time and, and briefly run through some of the themes and ideas that have been fleshed out. What are some of the, the insights that our Savior has delivered to us and that Luke has preserved in this wonderful gospel? It started right away. The angelic messenger of Luke chapter 1 told the Virgin Mary that the child she was going to conceive by the Holy Spirit would reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there would be no end. So right away, the angel tells Mary that this child that she is going to conceive and bear for the glory of God is coming to reign. This single verse contains so much meaning. We learn from this angel that the anointed one the Jews had been waiting for was coming, that he was almost there. And in contrast to the kingdom of Israel, which had been defeated and exiled from their holy land, the kingdom of God, ruled not by an earthly king on an earthly throne, but by his anointed chosen one, the kingdom of God would be an everlasting kingdom. It would not be a kingdom that could be threatened by other kingdoms. It, it would not be a kingdom that would be taken away through disobedience. It was his kingdom, and it was an everlasting kingdom. This would be good news for these Israelites who were so depressed about the state of their own nation. Luke 8.1 told us that wherever Jesus went, he brought the glad tidings of the kingdom of God to the different villages where he would preach. They wanted to hear this good news that God's kingdom was coming and this lack of, of autonomy that Israel had been experiencing for so many generations was going to eventually come to a close. God was going to establish his rule and his reign. Later on in that same chapter, in verse 10, and he said, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest it is given in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. 
So we learn from verse 10 there in chapter 8 that this kingdom of God is mysterious in many ways. It is counterintuitive. It is not going to manifest in the ways we necessarily expect it to. And so we need God to divinely open our eyes to the things of the kingdom so that we will not misunderstand it. This kingdom is in so many ways mysterious and and maybe that is why it is best described in parables. We get We get impressions of this kingdom as God progressively reveals what it will be and how it will impact our lives. Don't forget that in John 3.3, Jesus told Nicodemus that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So there are many who, who do not trust Christ yet and do not have the spirit. They have not been born again that the kingdom of God doesn't mean anything to them. They don't understand it or they see it in a completely wrong light. And so God is is helping us understand through the preaching and teaching of Jesus as he works his way down towards Jerusalem that this kingdom is mysterious and we have to look to him for clarification about what this kingdom is all about. Luke 9, verse 62. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So embracing the kingdom of God by necessity, requires a forfeiture of the kingdom on earth. If we're going to be a part of God's heavenly divine kingdom, then it's going to be a a transition for us. We cannot expect to have one foot in the world and one foot in heaven and straddle the two and belong in both places at the same time. Because this kingdom that is coming is better and greater and more full than any kingdom the world has ever seen. We need to let go of the kingdoms of earth and pour ourselves into the kingdom of heaven. We no longer belong in this world if we've trusted in Christ. We are now pilgrims. Pilgrims traveling on to the place where we really belong. That is why Jesus urges in Luke chapter 12, verse 31, but seek the kingdom of God. And all of these things, meaning the things of the world that we are often so anxious about, the things that we worry about, the things that concern us, all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom. Our emphasis, our desire, our drive and our passion needs to be for heavenly things. This kingdom now displaces our heart for the world, in a sense, and the things that belong in the world. We still care about the people that belong in the world because we want them to be a part of the kingdom that is being preached to us here. But the world itself, we we understand, is a shadow, is is a shadow of the real kingdom of God. It It is not what we need to put our emphasis on. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out 70 of his followers on essentially the first mission of preaching and healing and proclaiming the gospel message to the nation of Israel. And after healing the sick and after performing signs in these different villages, Jesus tells these missionaries who are sent off in pairs, two by two, he tells them that they are to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven has come near to you. So when their eyes, which have been blind for years, are open and they see, and when their crooked legs become straight and they leap up and can walk and run, These disciples are supposed to point out the fact that their healing is evidence of this kingdom that they have been waiting for finally arriving and showing itself to this world. Behold, the kingdom of God 
has come near to you. Even those who rejected Jesus and this gospel message were to be told the same thing. The, the pairs that were sent out on this mission were told if you go into a place and they reject your teaching and they will not embrace Jesus as the true Messiah, then they were to dust the, the, wipe the dust off of their shoes and leave to a town that would listen. But as they were going, they were to proclaim, though you have not believed, nevertheless, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So that proclamation is going out throughout all of Judea in the, in the book of Luke. Chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus tells us that the miraculous signs he performed were evidence of the present kingdom of God, showing that the kingdom of God was actually there already, that it was arrived. He said in verse 20, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God, which Jesus did again and again and again, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So these miraculous signs were evidence of the manifestation of this amazing kingdom that the Jews had yearned for for so long. Moving on to Luke 12, in verse 32, Jesus says, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. See how much time Jesus is putting on the expression of kingdom ideals as we work through this gospel. He's, he's telling his people not only is the kingdom here, but it is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom is not just something that believers will witness from a distance, but it is something that we will come to be a part of, something that we will possess. An inheritance in this kingdom will be ours by faith. Chapter 13 goes on to give us two kingdom metaphors. The kingdom of God is described as a mustard seed, very small to begin with, but which will grow to an enormous size, an unexpected size. We are also told that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that is kind of hidden within the lump. You don't even see that it's there, but a little bit will permeate itself through the whole loaf, letting us know that this kingdom, though, though people did not yet see it, though it was not apparent to all, was growing and rising and swelling in size, that the influence of this kingdom would continue to have more and more reach in the world of the lost as salvation continued to save and save and save. Luke 16, verse 16, says the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And so Jesus makes it clear to us that this concept of the kingdom of God represents a new chapter a turn, if you will. It is an axis upon which salvation is turning into this world as God is revealing another dispensation or covenant through which He will work in the lives of His people. So the law and the prophets are juxtaposed to the kingdom of God. The law and the prophets did what they were called to do. They revealed this deficiency in man. They showed us that we cannot by our own works attain fellowship with God by our righteousness because we fall short of this law again and again and again. And now the kingdom of God was coming and it was ushered in by the ruler of that kingdom himself, by Jesus Christ, who would give his life on the cross and wash clean the sins of all who would trust in him. Welcome to the kingdom of God. Can you see this strong thread that ties the whole gospel we've been studying so far together. 
this kingdom concept is really important for us to grasp. And Jesus is going to be teaching this concept in more depth in the next couple of Sundays. And so we want to make sure that we're holding on to these truths, that we're not just learning and forgetting, but that we are retaining and understanding and sitting in awe and wonder at what God is doing to reveal this kingdom to us and to bring it upon his world. And so we've arrived in chapter 17, and we are looking at verses 20 and 21 today. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Just two verses today, friends. Jesus begins to give further teaching about this kingdom of God. And at first, he addresses the information to the Pharisees, to this particular group within a group, opponents who doubted the viability of Jesus' role in God's kingdom. Now, for all their conflicts and tensions, and if you've been with us for a while, we've seen it again and again that the Pharisees continue to clash with Jesus and his teachings. For all their conflicts and tensions, the Pharisees, this religious group, and Jesus were actually in strong agreement on a number of very important theological points. The Pharisees believed in heaven. The afterlife was not yet a real canonized understanding yet. The people of Israel did not all totally agree on what was going to happen after this life ended. They had this concept of the grave. They had this concept of God being outside of time. And so perhaps when this life was over, we would somehow enter into that timeless concept with him. But not everybody agreed what was going to happen. The Pharisees preached boldly that there was a heaven, that there would be some kind of afterlife in which we would come to what they called Abraham's bosom and draw near to him if we were faithful in life. The Pharisees believed in resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees, who were another very strong religious group at that time, were in charge of the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees denied resurrection. They believed there was no such thing, that death was death. And when it was done, it was over. Your life was done. Your story was complete. God lived on, but you did not. So these Pharisees were on online with what Jesus was teaching about this idea of the resurrection. And these Pharisees believed that the kingdom of God was surely coming. They had great confidence that the prophetic utterances of the Old Testament that pointed towards this ruling king, this sovereign Lord who would descend from the line of David, they believed it was going to happen. So the question they bring to Jesus was not whether the kingdom would come in verses in 20 and 21. The question is when this kingdom would come. When would it reveal itself? How could they know that the kingdom had arrived? Though they agreed that God's kingdom was coming, their understanding of the kingdom was still fundamentally flawed in some ways. It was incomplete. And so Jesus intends to give them a more correct understanding and us along with it. And so first he makes it clear that the kingdom of God reaches beyond Israel. The kingdom of God reaches beyond Israel. Many thought that God's anointed one, his Messiah, would primarily be sent to restore the autonomous kingdom that had been lost for so many generations. The Pharisees who asked these questions of Jesus brought with them the popular misconception that God's focus was on restoring the physical borders to the promised land. 
In asking Jesus when they could expect the kingdom of God to come, they undoubtedly had this concept of the earthly kingdom of Israel in mind. To the average Jew, God's coming kingdom was understood as a hope for freedom. Freedom to live by the law of Moses without interference from Caesar's law looming over them. You see, the Israelites did have Israelite cities and townships, but those were all ruled by the empire of Rome, which had conquered so much of Palestine. And so they were allowed a degree of freedom to be who they were in the Lord God and to worship according to their customs and even to keep some of their religious laws in their provinces. But the last word was constantly Caesar's word. And that's why when Jesus is brought on trial, not only do they take him before the high priest and his council, but they also have to drag Jesus before Pontius Pilate because they don't have the freedom to just do whatever they want to do. These Jews saw the coming kingdom as a final breaking free of these secular nations, of these foreign nations that had for so long been the real rulers over physical Israel. They saw the coming kingdom as freedom from the Gentiles and the influences that had settled Canaan. They longed for a land where the the inhabitants of the land would all worship Yahweh and would all give offerings and sacrifices at the temple and would follow the law of Moses. They longed for the freedom from the shame of knowing that their blessing had been removed by God as a result of their inability to keep the law. Hundreds of years prior, 722 B.C., after again and again and again neglecting the covenant with God that they had agreed upon, the northern kingdom of Israel is put down by the Assyrian army. And from that point forward, their promised land is not theirs anymore. It is owned by other people. And just a couple uh, generations later, you see, and eventually in 598, finally, B.C., Babylon comes in and destroys Jerusalem, lays waste to the temple, and the southern kingdom of Judah also falls. And so all of what was the promised land, the gift that God had given to his people, had been taken away because they refused to listen to his warnings, to his admonitions to be righteous and to live in dependence on him. And so the shame was carried upon them. They were supposed to be the people of promise. They were supposed to be the ones who proclaimed to the world the greatness of this God. And yet, how can they do that when they themselves had had their blessing taken away? They wanted that shame gone once and for all. Even the 11 disciples in Acts chapter 1 revealed that their understanding of God's kingdom was shaded by this common nationalistic expectation that the kingdom of God would bring with it a physical kingdom with borders and boundaries and a man on a throne. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Therefore, when they had come together, this is after Jesus has given his life on the cross. This is after the three days in waiting and he rises from from the grave and shows himself to be triumphant. It's after about 40 days of Jesus showing himself to groups of people, to individuals, to prove that his resurrection was real and not a hoax. And then right before his ascension, therefore, when they had come together, they asked Jesus saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Even though they've seen that it's so much bigger than they can, they can comprehend, they're still holding on to that idea that Jesus had come to throw off Rome and its yoke and to restore Palestine to the Jews. Verse 7, And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So the Pharisees need to see beyond this limited scope 
of what they thought the kingdom would be, so did the disciples. And perhaps so do we. That the kingdom of God is so much greater than a, border, a bordered land. We cannot limit our understanding of God's kingdom by comparing it directly to earthly realms like we're used to seeing around us all the time. The kingdom is more than a, a set of material circumstances. It's not something that's going to be discerned by observation. And that's why he tells these Pharisees, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here, here's the kingdom of God. Oh, the kingdom of God is over there. That place over there is the kingdom of God. Rather, he's saying, indeed, the kingdom of God is within you, which we're going to talk about those words in just a few seconds. You can't circle the kingdom of God on a map. It's not a small little portion of the whole. You cannot build a fence around the kingdom of God. And so, friends, as we worship this God who is almighty and all-knowing and all-powerful, we need to expand what we expect the kingdom to be. It is His sovereign reign over all things and over the hearts of men and women throughout the world. Some believers, <clears throat> even today, some Christians, still have the traces of this nationalistic impression on them as they look to the modern nation of Israel. <clears throat> and they say, see, look, that's the kingdom of God. Israel, over there in, in, in the Middle East, that's the kingdom of God. But we would be doing ourselves and God a disservice to think that that alone is the kingdom. The Israel that we know, it, it's, it's a miracle that that Israel was restored and that land was given back to them, but they don't contain the boundaries that God had originally given to the promised land. The 12 tribes and all of their land is, is not currently owned and possessed by Israel, nor do they have a temple where they can offer sacrifices, and they are constantly afflicted by the peoples all around them. So if that alone is the kingdom of God, we're missing out on so much more. The kingdom goes beyond physical boundaries. It is bigger than a material manifestation. It is an eminent cosmic reality. That should humble us today to think about the fact that God's kingdom is over all that has been made. So if you, Christian, believe that you have a firm grasp on the definition of God's kingdom, you might want to humbly ask God to blow you away today and to start to help you see how much you don't see about the kingdom of God, that it is grander than we can imagine because it's so easy to see it in the wrong light. <clears throat> Verse 28 through 30 of Luke 13 said this. You might recall studying through this just a few months back. It says, There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. <clears throat> see, Jesus is warning some of these people that, that thought and believed in their heart because they were nationalistically Israelites, because they were ethnically Jewish, that they would be saved. And yet Jesus warns them that, listen, just because you come from the Jewish heritage does not mean that Yahweh is your God. You must love and worship this God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You've got to follow Him. You've got to trust in Him. Just because you have DNA that would be categorized as Israelite, that doesn't mean that you are necessarily saved. 
And so he's saying that many of you are going to get to the end of your life and you're going to be shocked that you are not in what they would call Abraham's bosom. That they are not there in the place of blessing with all the fathers that came before them, but rather they are cast away from the Lord God. And he says in verse 29, they will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. Jesus had again and again and again given evidence to these followers that the kingdom of God was going to breach the borders of nationalistic Israel, that it was going to include people from every area, that even the Gentiles would be afforded the grace that many thought was only going to be for ethnic Israel. And so these boundaries are being blown away by Jesus' concept of the kingdom. We need to be careful, though, friends, because we could just as easily swing the pendulum of confusion in the opposite direction, couldn't we? We could make the mistake of believing that the kingdom of God is just an abstract idea. The kingdom of God is not just in our hearts, friends. It is a reality. As God's reign is not dependent on our acceptance or the denial of the kingdom, it's coming whether we believe it or not. God's kingdom is real. It's just bigger than we understand it to be. There's a very concrete and material aspect of the coming of this kingdom And as such, Jesus does point out to these Pharisees that rather than just being some intangible concept, that the kingdom of God is in your midst. In your midst. Now, as we get into this point, here is an example of how very small differences in translation can actually impact our reading and understanding of a holy text. The New King James Version, which we've been using for a long time, we're preparing to shift into using the ESV version, English Standard Version. I'm going to put these two translations next to each other so you can see a subtle difference in how they are translated. The New King James Version renders the Greek words entos human as within you, that the kingdom of God is within you. Now that meaning is possible with those words. Entos human can be rendered as within you. But it is not probable that that's what was meant when it was written. There are several different options in translation. And considering the context, Jesus is speaking to who here? Pharisees, Pharisees, right? Is the kingdom of God within these Pharisees who constantly oppose Jesus and what he's teaching? No, the kingdom of God is not within them. So this, this... set of words needs to be translated slightly differently. And the English Standard Version renders that, I think, more accurately as in the midst of you. Meaning that this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God is not something far away, but it is actually there where you are at right now. You can witness it. You can see it if you would open your eyes. The kingdom of heaven is here. Yes, it is coming still. More of it is being revealed to us, but the kingdom of heaven is imminent. It is real. It is present even now. Jesus consistently describes entering into God's kingdom, not the kingdom of God entering into us. If you go back and do a study and look throughout the Gospels, you're going to see that time and time again that God, or through Christ, is admonishing us to enter into His kingdom, to partake in the kingdom. But He is not saying that the kingdom of heaven is going to be put inside of you. So the rendering of that word as within you can bring some confusion. The kingdom of God was in their midst. And it was something that they needed to enter into by faith. 
by embracing the lordship of Jesus, by gladly receiving citizenship in heaven and accepting the forfeiture of their place here on earth. After Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit enters into those who become citizens of God's kingdom, to be sure. Luke's readers were most likely Gentile believers, and they would have been very familiar with this idea of the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, but the Holy Spirit is not the same thing as the kingdom itself. So while the presence of God does indwell us, the, the kingdom of God is not something that's described by Scripture as being in our hearts. So Jesus is opening the eyes of these Pharisees to what is right in front of them. The kingdom was in many ways already in hand, at hand before them. One of the ways that was true is that the, the kingdom of God was in their midst because Jesus, the king of this godly kingdom, was literally walking there with them. The ruler of this kingdom of heaven stood before their very eyes. He answered their questions. He spoke eternal truth to them. This is evident in the things that Jesus said. It was evident in the things that he did. All of his sign works pointed again and again to his divine power. You see this, and we will see it in the days to come when we get closer and closer to when Jesus and his disciples arrive in Jerusalem, the place they've been headed for for so long now. When they get to Jerusalem, how do people greet him? They greet him as a king. They take palm fronds and they wave them before him and they lay their coats down on the ground and he enters into Jerusalem on the back of a colt as a king would enter in in procession. So Jesus is this king and he is with them at the moment and so that leader of the kingdom of heaven is right in front of their faces. You might, you might remember when they asked the disciples, why, or asked Jesus, why do your disciples not fast like we do? We fast twice a week and we do all these holy things. And Jesus says, well, you know what? When, when the bridegroom is with the, the bride, you don't fast, you celebrate. He was showing them that the king of the kingdom was there and there was much reason to rejoice because God was doing a mighty work to re reveal a, a new manifestation of the kingdom of heaven. You want to see the kingdom come? Well, you're looking right at the king of that kingdom when you ask him when it's going to come. Ironically, the inability of so many of the Israelites would be symbolized in the ironic fact that when they crucified this king, when they put him to death, the Roman soldiers mockingly fixed a makeshift sign to the vertical support of the cross that read, Behold, the king of the Jews. In their efforts to mock him, they made a true declaration of the fact that this heavenly kingdom, which was greater than any earthly kingdom, had arrived, and its leader was the one they had just put to death. Jesus is in essence saying, look around you. People are embracing the kingdom of God, left and right. So not only was Jesus evidence of the present kingdom, but the fact that people were giving their lives to follow after Christ again and again was evidence. The kingdom of God was in their midst because many people were repenting and trusting in that true king. Lives were being changed. The blind could see. The poor were being represented finally. The word was being preached in truth. All the things that the scripture had told people to look for were being made a reality in the ministry of Jesus. 
Though the Pharisees and the other elite groups were skeptical, there were many who had been willing to stake their claim in the fact that Jesus was indeed the anointed one of God. Those who were willing to acknowledge Jesus as God's chosen were shifting their allegiance away from themselves to this new king that God had prepared for them. In the Beatitudes, Jesus addressed those who entered the kingdom by faith. And the first Beatitude he says is, Blessed are those who are poor, or in Matthew, who are poor in spirit. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of God. The kingdom was coming, and many were entering into that kingdom as he spoke these very words. So these Pharisees need not look here or search there for a specific kingdom that was separated away from the other uh, geographical locations of the earth. There was a very real sense for which they didn't even have to wait for the kingdom because the kingdom was arriving even now. Now this is not completely obvious in the text, friends, but there is an implication here that is worth considering. Because the God of creation is a sovereign God, there is a real sense in which the kingdom of God is always here. The kingdom of God is always reigning. For these Pharisees and for many of the Jewish people, the restoration of the kingdom of God was tied to their independence as a nation that possessed its own land. But that narrow view had obscured a much more important reality. Whether Israel has a land or is wandering, is God God? Yes. Whether they worship in a temple or as they had for so many generations in a tabernacle that goes from here there a temporary structure is God God yes whether they are a concentrated location of people or whether they are scattered in exile throughout the world is God continuing to be God yes 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 God reigns he reigns always he reigns eternally God is a sovereign God and so even when it appears that there is opposition to him even though we look at this world and we see the, the marks of sin throughout, and we know and can see that the prince of darkness has been given a degree of freedom with which he influences this world, even though we can see the evidence of that, we can take great comfort in knowing that the kingdom of God is never gone. Yes, it is coming with greater force. It is coming with greater clarity, but it has never been gone. God continues to reign on the throne as he always had. I want to share with you a little passage of scripture out of Daniel chapter 4 because it is ironically spoken from the lips of a king who for a time thought himself to be sovereign. This is a very interesting passage of scripture in Daniel. To get you kind of caught up to what's happening here, the southern kingdom watched the northern kingdom fall a hundred years prior. And yet they did not heed the cries of the prophets. They did not repent. They did not set right what was crooked within their own borders. And so God allowed another nation, a stronger nation, Babylon, this empire that was swelling and rising in power and influence, to come and to conquer Judah. And with it, Jerusalem, David's holy city. And so these people had been conquered. They had been oppressed by the Babylonians. Many of their people had been brought out and exiled into Babylon. This man who ran their army was named Nebuchadnezzar, was a mighty ruler, very wise in battle, capable of taking out country after country and making them part of his own growing empire. And yet this man, Nebuchadnezzar, was shown the hard way 
that when you take credit for what only God can do, God does not overlook that. And this man who boasted of his own accomplishments, this man who saw himself as great, had a statue made in his own image so that his people could worship it, God brought him low. And the scriptures tell us that this man, Nebuchadnezzar, was made to act like a feral animal for a time. He lost his mind. The Lord God revealed to him that he would be punished for his pride, and he literally lost his mind. And Babylon didn't know what to do. This man was a figurehead of authority, and so they tried to cover it up. They let him run around in the, in the gardens of Babylon and in these areas that were cordoned off from the rest of the world and pretended like nothing was happening. And he was eating the grass of the field and behaving like livestock. He was brought so low for a period of years. And when God had made his point to Nebuchadnezzar, he gave him his mind back. And he let this man who was of Gentile stock, this man who was not from Israel, this foreigner, see the mighty hand of God was the whole reason Babylon had been allowed to defeat Judah in the first place. And this is from the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar. These are the words that this sovereign king, this man who was so proud of his accomplishments and his power, nobody in the world was as powerful as him at that time. This is what he says about Yahweh. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. He has been humbled. This man of might and power has been brought low. And God has shown him that there is no king above the king of kings. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? That is the God we come to worship today, friends. A God whose kingdom will never be stopped and a God whose kingdom has been concurrently reigning forever from the beginning, but is now being shown to us in more real ways as God is inviting us to be participants in this kingdom, as God is inviting us to enjoy an inheritance in this kingdom. And our citizenship is now no longer in this broken, fallen world, which is degrading little by little, but we can now come in and be a part of this everlasting kingdom that will not be stopped. The sovereignty of God can be the most terrifying reality for us if we cling to the mistaken notion that we are capable of ruling ourselves. If we hold on to this Nebuchadnezzar-like ideal that by our own strength and wisdom, by our own power, we can make our lives into what we want it to be, that no one can stop me. I can do whatever I put my mind to. If we continue to try to rule ourselves as our own God, then the sovereignty of this God who proves again and again and again that there is no rival to his throne will be terrifying to us. But it can also be the greatest relief we ever experience if we will gladly embrace the truth that only God himself can be king and reign on high. Only Jesus deserves to be the king of our lives. We don't deserve that spot. We don't deserve that honor. We don't deserve that kind of freedom. We're not equipped to handle it. 
And as hard as it is on our pride to step back and confess that to our God, when we say, God, I see my sin. You have brought me low. I am humbled before you now. Though I have raged against you for years, I now understand I cannot rival you, God. You are king. When we come before him and say, Lord, I am now gladly turning over the keys of my kingdom to you. Be my God. Will you let me be your child? In that time of humility, something changes. The Holy Spirit comes upon those who trust in the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, who who have faith in Jesus Christ as the sole Savior. And when that transformation occurs in us, now the sovereignty of God is not terrifying to us anymore because we're not trying to battle against that kingdom. I'm now part of His kingdom. Now it is the greatest joy of my life to know that it is not up to me to secure my destiny. It is not up to me to defend the borders of my life. There is a God who is unfaceable, a God who cannot be turned away, a God who knows all things and is all-powerful, who is determining my path. I don't have to worry anymore. Isn't that a beautiful thing? I could stubbornly cling to this idea that I can do all things through me, who strengthens me, or I can give all that up and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me as long as it's according to his will and his purpose because he's always been better than me. He will always be bigger than me. I don't deserve to be near to him and yet his love is poured out on me. Worry is obsolete when we come to terms with God's sovereignty. There is such such a kaleidoscope of beautiful colors when we look at the kingdom of God and this concept that Jesus is bit by bit fleshing out for us through scripture after scripture after scripture. There is an already aspect of the kingdom of God knowing that the kingdom of God is here, that it is showing itself to be real, that we can witness it, that we can observe it and be a part of it now. And there is also, in addition to that already part of the kingdom, there is an not yet part of the kingdom. We also get to have a great anticipation for the things to come, knowing that God is revealing more and more the power and influence of this kingdom that is growing like a mustard seed that is branching out and creating shade and shelter for whoever will nest in its branches. This kingdom of God is an amazing concept. So Jesus was not telling the Pharisees that they were wrong to think of the kingdom as something yet to come, but he was revealing that they couldn't only see it that way, and that this kingdom was much grander than they had in mind. And by learning alongside these Pharisees and understanding the truth of the kingdom, I pray that it gives us a sense of awe and wonder. I I pray that it'll give us a security as we think about the state of our nation, that we don't have to make America the kingdom of God. There is relief in that. As we see the tribulations and trials that our nation brings upon itself, America isn't the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is much bigger than America. In the middle of the 4th century, uh, Constantine declared Christianity the official religion of Rome, still a powerful empire at that time. And for many, many years, Christianity's scope and influence spread because of that decision. But then Rome began to tank as an empire. It began to fall apart. And I do not doubt that there were many who thought, well, this Christianity, it's going to die out with Rome because that kingdom can't last. There are stronger ideas. There are stronger rulers now. Guess what? Rome passed away. It's not what it was before. 
But Christianity is stronger than ever. Christianity is alive and well because the kingdom of heaven is beyond the borders of earthly realms. So we should pray for our nation. We should love the people in our nation. But the victory of God is not tied to the prosperity of America. It is much greater than that. We as citizens of this nation need to train ourselves now to see the kingdom as it has already come, to recognize the power that it has in our lives now, to know that God reigns on high and to be grateful for that and to worship Him for it. And we need to apply ourselves to the kingdom that we belong to by faith. Am I living in this kingdom's reality? Am I focused on it? Am I eternal-minded? Am I missionally focused? Or am I just living for the things that distract, for the kingdoms that are falling and fading and will soon not be relevant anymore? Or am I living for eternity? Friends, the next section in Luke 17 is going to develop more our understanding of the kingdom to come, especially the way the kingdom is more fully realized with the return of Jesus Christ. So we've got a lot more to learn. Let's bow our heads and thank God for the word as it comes to us and opens our eyes to the truth. Lord, you are magnificent. There is none who compare to you. And Father, if we just came this morning and thought for hours and hours about how wonderful you are, Lord God, it would not be a waste of our time. We are here because you are good and because you love us. Your common grace keeps this world going despite the sin that dishonors you within this world. And so we thank you for that common grace, God, but we thank you even more for the specific grace you have poured out onto those who have you, you have let become a part of your kingdom, God. We want to trust you more than we do. We want to embrace your truth. And so I pray that as we come to this word together, Lord, you would give us a sense of trust in it, Lord, that we would, we would see it as all that we need, that we would understand that it is proficient for us, that it is sufficient. There's nothing that we need to add to this, world, or this word to get us where we need to be with you, Lord God. You have given us all that we need. We need to simply trust in you and embrace the truths that you have shown us are on their way and they're already here. We praise you, God, and thank you, Lord, uh, for reminding us uh, that there is so much more that we don't see, Lord. It is humbling to come before you and know that of all that you have revealed, Lord, there is so much more in the depth of your, of your truth, of your goodness. And we long for those days that we can be where Beverly is today, Lord, standing by your side and taking it in, worshiping you in a way that we have not yet to this point been able to worship you. And so God, until that day comes, let us be a strong testimony. Let us be a city on a hill, a bright light that shines in the darkness so that people can see that they don't have to stake their joy in the crumbling nations of this world or in the kingdoms that are so easily toppled, but that they can trust in the one kingdom that has always reigned and always will. To your Son, Jesus Christ, be the glory. And we pray these things by His name. Amen.